I must confess, I got mixed up on the calendar and thought that we were starting a new series today on identity and rhythms, and indeed I was wrong. Uh, we're in Luke again. <laughs> so uh, I got part of the way through the week and was studying and then realized after looking at my schedule that uh, that's not till next week. So if I can find Luke, we'll be set to go here. Luke chapter 18. The question today we're going to ask is, what is salvation? What is salvation? How do we understand salvation? How does it take place? How does it happen? And I'm sure that there's a good chance if you've been in church any portion, decent portion of your life, you're thinking, ah, this is awesome. It's an opportunity for me to check out. And I would encourage you that um, this is not an opportunity for us to check out. What is salvation? I think if you've been around Renovation Church for any amount of time, uh, this is something that we talk about often, how we are saved, how do we continue to work out our salvation, what's our role in salvation, what's God's role in salvation, how do we, how do we think through this, because ultimately salvation, if we don't understand that rightly, or at least not on the trajectory to understand that rightly, then most of our other, if not all of our other doctrines and beliefs and practices flowing out from that will be mistaken as well. Uh, and so it's a dangerous thing to get wrong. Because um, not only is our eternal state and our salvation as far as our living with God for eternity in His presence and underneath His kindness rather than His wrath, not only is that at stake, but also how we live this life to His glory is at stake as well. So if you've been a part of this church, you know that this is a, a common topic of discussion, and it will always remain a common topic of discussion as long as we are following God's Word. Now, outside of this body, or outside of even like-minded churches, salvation, for many, is a number of things that I think that we would disagree with, and the Bible would disagree with, more importantly. Uh, maybe salvation, for some, is saying the sinner's prayer. Does anybody know the sinner's prayer? Uh, there's not like an official sinner's prayer, but let me read to you part of one. Dear God in heaven, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I acknowledge to you that I am a sinner and I'm sorry for my sins. And, and the life that I've lived, I need your forgiveness. I believe that your only begotten son Jesus shed his precious blood on the cross at Calvary and died for many, my sins and I'm, not, I'm now willing to turn from my sins, so and so and so forth. All those good truths... All of those found in the Bible, all of those are supported by Scripture. Uh, all those are good components and maybe even necessary components when it comes to salvation. Um, but the act of rec the recitation of words, right, as we saw in the song, no act, no recitation of the words can, can, can save my soul. It's just the same, no reciting of this 
magical words can save you. But many believe that. For others, salvation is equal to church membership. Well, as long as I'm associated with a Christian group of people, then I'm good to go. As long as my name is on the membership roll. As long as I'm associated, and, it's, and hopefully it's the right people, then I'm saved and I'm, I'm set to go. For others, salvation is some form of doing good deeds. Right? As long as I've done enough good, now I'm saved, or now God will look favorably upon me when that time comes for me to enter into eternal life. Now, you're saying, well, Matt, I don't struggle with any of that. I, I got that. And I would say, I would encourage you to drop your pride for a few moments and understand that we still sink back into this kind of mindset where salvation comes from something other than Jesus Christ. And then secondly, I would encourage you that you're not the only one that you should be concerned about. But that if you're learning the truths of God's Word just to hide them in your heart, then you miss the rest of the life of following Christ, and that is proclaiming those truths that are in your heart to those who need to hear the truth. And so if you're just getting it to bottle it all up, you miss the whole point. The, the point is to bottle it up so that you can then spill it all out. And so I'd encourage you that as we think about those and how pe different people view salvation, that you stop thinking so selfishly and think, who around me needs to hear the truth of the gospel? What do they believe? And if we understand that, they, that their eternity is at stake, and we understand that there's a loving God that is desireful of redemption in their life, then we will take the time to understand what is the truth of Scripture concerning salvation, sift our life through that truth, and then out of that, truth and sifting, share and proclaim the truth to those who desperately need it, just like you and I desperately need it. So I just want to encourage you here from the very beginning, examine your own life through the lens of this specific text, but then we need to teach it, we need to share it. Understand that most of the people you work with think of themselves as either Christians or Catholic, but in either case, they consider themselves right with God. Or at least they hope themselves to be right with God. It's just not a... I mean, now you, yeah, you're going to have the, the atheist, you're going to have the person that, that seemingly doesn't care, so on and so forth, but most people think that they're right with God. I think Jesus has a very different understanding of that. So we need to think carefully about this. So the question for today is what did Jesus teach about salvation? In Luke 18, what does Jesus teach about salvation? We've already seen and, and we'll see some today that he taught a few things here. He taught that we all need to be saved. That we all are in desperate need to be saved from the wrath of God. This is not a foreign concept to Scripture. There is no annihilation. There is a point at which you will begin to endure the wrath of God for all of eternity. Jesus does not hide this fact. But He taught that we all need to be saved. He also taught that we can be saved. Jesus taught that we can be saved. Like, that should astound you. 
as my seminary professor in systematic theology would say, it's astonishing that God would save us, that we can be saved. If that doesn't astonish you, then you don't understand your desperation. He also taught that salvation is a gift of God. It is a gift of God. And that's where we're really going to park at today, is this idea of salvation as a gift of God. Now, again, depending on your church background, if you grew up in the church, you've heard this phrase, you've probably proclaimed that you believe this phrase, and yet, let's take the time to understand what we mean, what Jesus means when he says a gift of God. This is fundamental to our understanding of salvation. God's sovereignty over salvation is absolutely crucial to the working out of the rest of your faith and my faith. Understanding that it's a gift is crucial. Now listen, if you get the fundamentals of salvation wrong, then the rest will fall apart. Many Christians, I think, get it wrong at this point. And then they wonder why the rest of their life struggles. Many think that you can deny God's sovereignty over salvation, but then claim His sovereignty everywhere else. That's just crazy. He's either sovereign or He's not sovereign. He's either God or He's not God. There is no middle, there is no like halfway there. He's either sovereign over it all or He's not sovereign over anything. He's just a really good guesser. So I want us to think carefully about what it means for salvation to be a gift of God. If you want a big idea, we're thinking through gift of God. Now, as much as, like, if you know me, as much as I would love to give a, a doctrinal, topical treatment of soteriology or the doctrine of salvation, uh, as much as I would love to do that, uh, we're going to stick to what the text talks about, this specific text, instead of jumping all over the place. Uh, we're going to let Jesus speak for himself concerning salvation here in Luke 18. So, and the overall picture of Luke, we're coming to the end at this point of Jesus' earthly ministry. So we're seeing his earthly ministry begin to wrap up. And after this week, and, well, and then after the next series uh, on identity and rhythms for four weeks, when we come back to Luke, basically the rest of the time is going to be spent in the last week of Jesus' life. So the rest of Luke basically will, will center around the last week of Jesus' life. I think you will find salvation presented here in Luke 18 unlike what most people believe when it comes to salvation. And remember, this is not just for you to get this right. It's for you to get this right so that you can proclaim what is right to those who need to hear the truth of God. So, beginning... Salvation is a gift of God, so therefore, never give up in prayer. Never give up in prayer. Luke 18, let's read verse 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So there's your theme sentence, if you will, for 1 through 8. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, 
Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Um, let's pray. Father, I ask that as we work through this text this morning, um, that uh, anything that I would say apart from the word would be burned up, would not be remembered. And Father, that only the things that would be remembered from the sermon would be those truths from your word. Father, I just pray that you would help me to step aside. And Father, um, help our hearts to take care to hear what you would have to say to us this morning. And it's in your son's name. Amen. So here we have another example of where Jesus uses an obviously sinful man and situation in order to teach us something. So just like the shrewd manager, that was a sinful situation where he's not doing what he should be doing with the guy's money, but yet Jesus uses it to teach us, teach us something very important. So basically, I mean, see, basically we see a crafty teaching on Jesus' part because with the extremeness of the judge, we are led very quickly to Jesus' point. There is no allegorizing of the text at this point. We're not assigning different characters to different roles, but instead Jesus gets us to the point very quickly. And the point is this. If the unjust judge would give justice, how much more will God give answers to his chosen children? If the unjust judge would do this, how much more would God do this to his chosen children? I think it's important that we understand the chosen point here, the the elect point. It's not something to be prideful about. It's something to be humbled about. That God has chosen to show kindness to you. That you're the object of receiving His kindness. But if the unjust would judge would do this, how much more would God do this to his children? The second thing we see in this passage is that we see God cares about justice. See, God cares about justice. It's interesting, in our day and age, in our culture, the, the, the sexy thing or the, even the culturally acceptable thing is to be a Christian who champions the idea of social justice, oftentimes to the neglect of the gospel. Social justice, meaning basically defending the rights of those who are, le- are more vulnerable. Um, you know, the poor, sex trafficking, those things. Those are, those are incredibly popular to do. And you can be a Christian and fight against those injustices without the world really fighting you on it or condemning you for it. So that's very appealing to do. But oftentimes we do it to the neglect of the gospel. But I just want to... Show us, though, that God does care about injustice. He cares about justice. 
It's a reflection of his character. And we should care about those things too. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't be concerned about taking care of the poor and the widow. We should be very much concerned about those things. But to the neglect of the gospel is just a warning as a side note here. But God does care about justice. The, set, the last thing I want to point out is, will he find faith on earth? What is Jesus talking about there? Will he find faith on earth? I think what he's speaking about is the potential for his disciples to lack in perseverance of prayer. And so the context here is persevering in prayer. And then Jesus talks about will he find faith when he returns. And I think he's talking about will his disciples persevere in prayer. And I think that's kind of the gist of this passage. Verse 1 through 8, the justice is a side note. The main point here, the main thrust is the disciples persevering in prayer. And I think we have to ask the question to ourselves, are we persevering in prayer? Are you persevering in prayer? Is your life even characterized as a life of prayer? Are you persevering in prayer? So here's the deal. If you understand that salvation is a gift of God and not something that you earn, then prayer is something that overflows from this very same context. The God who chose you is the same God who guarantees your perseverance in prayer. But see, see, here's the deal. If you don't understand God's sovereignty and God's ordaining in salvation, then we're not going to understand God's sovereignty and ordaining and empowering in perseverance even in prayer. Jesus says to persevere here in prayer. God is sovereign over both. The moment we are saved and as we are persevering in this praying time. If you are not persevering in praying, then maybe you don't believe that God gifts you with the ability to persevere. I would encourage you, instead of going, I'm going to muster up more faith to pray. I'm going to muster up more strength to pray. Go repent to God and ask Him to give you the strength to pray, the perseverance to pray. If you understand it as a gift, this is both a gift as well. Trust in praying is a huge deal. Let me ask you, isn't it the very nature of trust to continue to trust? Especially when it comes to God. It's the very nature of trust to continue to trust. So even when your prayers are not being answered, maybe in the way that you want them to be answered, or maybe you're not hearing anything at all, do you continue to persevere in praying? The, act, the idea of trusting God, which should lead us to continue to pray, fervently, continually, constantly, praying, asking God for whatever that is. Now, I think Scripture would help guide our prayers, but we're not talking about that this morning. We're talking about just persisting in prayer. Jesus says, verse 1, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So are you persevering in prayer? Second, salvation is a gift of God, therefore never give up on praying to him. Salvation is also a gift, salvation is a gift of God, therefore Humble yourself by relinquishing the idea that you earn salvation. That you earn salvation. Hmm. 
Verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. All right. So... Let's work through this. This is an example of self-righteous, self-exaltation versus self-humble. Self-righteousness versus self-humility or humbling. So sure, the Pharisee at this point was different than the tax collector on the outside. I mean, he was doing these right actions. But he failed to see that they actually had great similarities. The two of them were very similar. They both are in desperate need of the grace of God. The Pharisee just didn't realize that. The Pharisee stood before God proclaiming his self-made righteousness. God, look what I've done. You understand that the Pharisee at this point is essentially saying, God, look what I've done. Worship me. Look at me. I've earned my way into your presence. And the sinner, the tax collector says, recognized his inability to please a holy God. He was humble. He was declaring his dependence and his desperation. We see that. Now if you're a follower of Christ, I wonder what it looks like when you stand before God. So this morning, last night, yesterday, right this very second, what does it look like? When your heart stands before God, how do you communicate to God? What would you say to God at this point as you walk into His presence? What did you say to God last night? I go to church, God. I read my Bible. I've been in church my whole life. I don't say curse words. I don't have a lot of debt. My family has always gone to church. I sing those songs that are important. And where do you try to earn your righteousness before God? You see, this is, this is where we have to be so careful. Because most of us in, in here would agree, salvation is a gift of God, it's, I cannot earn it, right? Ephesians 2. I can't do that. But yet, we continually live it out as though we don't believe that salvation is a gift of God. I mean, the Pharisee of all people should have known this. I mean, understand the Pharisee knew the Bible better than any of us in here ever will, most likely. And yet, he stands before God in his self-righteousness. What makes us think that we can go life without trying to stand before God in our self-righteousness? It's a temptation for all of us. Where do you stand currently 
in your self-righteousness. I'm convinced the more I study Scripture and the more I pastor and the more I live even myself, that we struggle with self-righteousness so much. I mean, it's an epidemic. You say, okay, help me figure this out. Where, where do I operate in my own self-righteousness? Give me, give me some examples. So I'll give you a couple examples. Here's one. Do you operate apart from God's means of grace in your life? And oftentimes when we operate apart from God's means of grace in our life, it's because we have it figured out. Because of our self-righteousness. Because I'm good to go, so I can operate apart from the means that God intends to help me operate or live through life. Give, let me give you a specific example. Maybe as a husband, you do not seek the advice of your wife when making decisions. Instead, you in pride, self-exaltation, self-righteousness, make the decisions on your own. Your wife is a means of grace to help. Now, yeah, I mean, we, we teach complementarianism here where the husband is the leader in the house and, and all that, but guys, that doesn't mean that you make decisions disregarding your wife. She is a means of grace. And instead, oftentimes, men, in our self-righteousness, we got this figured out. I don't need her. And so essentially, you're saying this, the same thing you're saying is, I don't need God, because God's the one that's designed it for her to be your helper. So God, the way you planned it, I don't need that. I'm good to go. I can just make the decisions that I want to make. Let me give you a second example. Maybe as a Christian, you live life just close enough to the body that you appear to be a good follower, but you distance yourself just enough so that in your self-righteousness you can live the way you want to. I think this is a dangerous place. Because you now believe you're following faithful because you're close enough to to the family, but in reality, you're living in your self-righteousness because God intends to speak to you through the body. You see? So, so we can begin to believe our publicity that we are a good follower, so we're just close enough where, where the body knows a little bit what's going on in our life, and, and we talk a little bit about our struggles or a little bit about our decision-making but, but we keep ourselves just far enough so that no one really knows what's going on or no one really can speak to the sin or struggle in our life. And, and we just kind of walk parallel like this, believing that we're following Christ faithfully, but in reality, we're just living in our self-righteousness instead of in abandonment to the body so that we can grow together in faith. It's self-righteousness. I'm just giving you an example, an implication of this. I think this really reveals itself when it comes to following leaders in the church. And we don't need to turn here. I'd encourage you to turn. Matter of fact, I'd encourage you to turn and study this passage with a lot of effort. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. <clears throat> this is the passage that says, Obey and submit to your leaders. To make it a joy for them as they were the ones that will give an account for your soul. I would encourage you to study that passage diligently. I want to point out a couple things to help you in that study as you go to look at that verse. 
Because it's really dangerous. It's easy for us in our self-righteousness to go, I've got this figured out. I don't need this means of grace that God's put in my life to help me. The word obey in that passage is the Greek word pathos. I'm going to give you a little bit of a Greek lesson. I don't do this very often. But I think this is important. Matter of fact, it's super important to understanding that passage rightly. The word pathos, there's P-E-I-T-H-O-S, is the transliteration for that, uh, if you're interested. <laughs> it's actually the conjugation of the verb is second person, plural, middle voice. Second person, plural, middle voice. Second person, you're going, whoa, 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 whoa. All right, second person. Anybody know what second person is? It's you. If you're from Kentucky, since it's plural, it means y'all, okay? Y'all. So it's second person plural. It's you. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, you all. Or if you're from Ohio, you guys. Uh, If you're from Kentucky, again, y'all. I prefer to say y'all. That works good. He's saying, you all. Now, all right, so humor me for just a moment because this is is crucial. In English, we have active and passive voice. Some of you are like, whoa, this is so cool. And some of you are like, dude, you're losing me. All right, so just stick with me, okay? Active is like I threw the ball, right? So the subject is doing the action, right? And passive is the actions being done to the subject, right? In middle voice, Greek has this tense that we do not have. I'm sorry, the tense is present. The voice is middle. Does it make sense? I don't want to confuse anybody. The tense is present. Uh, the, we're talking about voice, middle voice. Middle voice is this in Greek. We don't have a translation for this. Middle voice is where the subject is doing the action to itself. So the way we would trans... So the word pathos literally means to persuade. That's the the base meaning of pathos. It's to persuade. So, So hear this. The way we can most, like, translate that word or that passage to really capture what the Greek is saying at this point. See, obey comes close, but not quite. Literally, to translate that would be this. You all persuade yourselves in following your leaders. You all persuade yourselves, and and if you really get into it, it, to the point of view of your leaders is really what he's saying there. You all persuade yourselves. Now, if you don't like that, that's what he says in Hebrews. Now, if that's not enough, in the middle voice, it's actually putting an emphasis on the words you all, on the subject. So the only way we can capture that in English is by putting like an italics on that word. You all, in italics, persuade yourselves to the point of view of your leaders. And so that is where we come up with the word obey. Now, now see, I I know already, like in some of us, in our hearts right now, we're like, oh, I don't like that. Ugh. It's so uncomfortable. It's probably self-righteousness. It's okay to submit to your leaders. They give an account for your soul. And you say, well, what if I don't trust them? Well, you don't trust God, ultimately. 
Now, if it's not a matter of disqualification, then it's a matter of your, in relation, your relationship with God. If they're not disqualified from office, if they're not doing things that are immoral, unethical, then, then your responsibility is to persuade yourself to them. So, but where does the self-righteousness come in? It comes in when we say, you know, no, I want to do it this way, so I'm going to find means of justification to do what I want to do, regardless of what the leaders or the body tells us to do or encourages us to do. Why would, so why would the writer of Hebrews put something like this? Why would he, so who's he writing to? He's writing to a church to a body of believers, so this is not like, well, that was for them and this is us now. No, this is for all of us. I mean, clearly the author of Hebrews was a Jew. I mean, he's a Jew of Jew. I mean, it's argued, people argue that it was, that it was Paul. There's a good chance. But he understood, I think, as a Jew, just like the Pharisees, that there was a tendency towards self-righteousness. Let me ask you a question. What happened in the garden? They just go, wow, that, that fruit would taste pretty good. I think we'd go for that. I think I'd prefer an apple to the oranges that God's given me. Is that what it came down to? No, it came down to they wanted to live life autonomous of God, separate from God. They thought they could do it on their own. They thought they could decide what was good and evil on their own, apart from God. It was their self-righteousness. We've got this figured out, God. We don't need you. I'm going to eat from the tree, and we're going to proceed. So what happens is the author of Hebrews and Jesus back here in Luke understands our tendency towards self-righteousness that leads us to living autonomously from the means of grace that God has given us in this life. The church being one of those main things, not just the leaders, but the body, is to there to spur each other on. God has given us the body, guys, to help with this problem. And so we have the body, we have our spouses, our, our God's means of grace for this life to help us not live in an autonomous state where it's all about what we want to decide in our decisions and what we want to do. Now I know I teased that implication out pretty far, but I think it's dangerous for us. And it's a very practical means in which God has established for us to practice not living on our own, not living in our self-righteousness, but instead humbling ourselves and going, you know what, I recognize that God has put things in place in my life to lead me, and I'm going to submit. I'm going to, as Hebrews said, convince myself to their point of view. Let me give another example. Maybe you live self-righteously with those around you. Let me ask you this. Do you find yourself frustrated often at the lack of maturity, growth, or success in the lives of those around you, maybe your kids? you find yourself frustrated at that? Maybe you lack the grace and patience with them because of your self-righteousness. I struggle with this often. I get frustrated. Like, why, why are they there? And that's because when I look at myself, I'm beating my chest saying, God, I'm righteous. I stand before you. I've done this. I've done this. I've done this. I've got this together in my life. And, and then, and then I, but when I stop and recognize that I need to repent for my self-righteousness, then, I, then marvelously I have the grace and the patience 
to work with those who maybe haven't accomplished some of those same things. I mean, there's a very real sense in which the Pharisee has accomplished these certain things in his life. He does fast. He does pray. He does do these things. Now, arguably, the heart's not there. That's where his self-righteousness is at. When we understand our desperate need for grace, our desperate need for dependence on God and the means of grace that He's put in our lives, we will reflect this in our relationships with other people. Because maybe because we think so highly of ourselves, that's why we get frustrated when people don't live up to that standard. So that's another way in which self-righteousness comes out. Because ultimately, we may think that even though literally God's not like, like standing right in front of us when we are looking down on these people for not having it figured out, but really God is. We're standing there when we look down on that person. We're standing there beating our chest saying, God, I'm righteous. God, I've got this together. And God's just standing there going, no, look, dude, you don't. They don't, and neither do you. You both need my grace. You both need my kindness, my mercy. If you're not a follower of Christ, so the first, what we just talked about is if you're a follower of Christ, now if you're not a follower of Christ, does the idea of justified make sense to you? Does the idea of justified make sense? Jesus' assumption is not here that we're okay with God, but quite the opposite. See, see most the people around us assume that we're okay with God. Jesus does not assume that. He assumes the opposite. Jesus gives his very, Jesus in giving his very life shows that he believes that we're not right with God. He dies on the cross to show us this. Christ taught that God is holy and that we're not. And we need someone to pay the price that our sin brings upon us and we deserve wrath because of our sin. Here the tax collector realizes his desperate state and begs for the mercy of God. And upon this mercy comes the justification of God. In doing this, he's justified. The wrath, instead of being poured out on him, will be poured out on Christ. So if you're not a follower of Christ, I'd hope you hope and pray that you would understand that you can do nothing to make yourself right before God. Only Christ can make you right before God. And Christians, just to summarize, stop trying to make yourself right before God. Christ is the one who does that. So in your humility, understand your desperate need for Christ. And then out of that, live a life that is righteous, that is holy. See, if you try to live this life that is righteous and holy, apart from understanding your desperate need for God and His ultimate living of that righteousness life, will lead you to simply self-righteousness. The foundation is crucial. If you start on the wrong place, it leads to the wrong place. Right? So consider one last thing. Consider this. The possibility of knowing that we have been justified. The possibility of you knowing. The idea that we can actually live our lives carrying out the tasks that God has given us, knowing that we have been justified. Whew. Like, that's awesome. Astonishing, if you will. My next line in here is I hope that this astounds you, right? 
We don't have to wonder whether or not God has favor on us. The beauty is our justification is not based upon what we do, but it's based upon what Jesus did and what He will foretell of for the third time at the end of this passage. But based upon what Jesus did. So in light of the text, I'd encourage you, humble yourselves because you realize that you cannot earn your salvation. Many of us spend day in and day out in ways that we don't even realize trying to earn our salvation. And this should lead to living a life of grace and kindness towards other people and humility, understanding your rightful place before God. So since giving, since salvation is a gift of God, humble yourselves by relinquishing the idea that you can earn salvation. Next, since salvation is a gift of God, therefore always trust God. Always trust God. The lesson in this next passage is that we should always trust God. Because if salvation is something of our doing, then can you trust yourself? Hmm? Verse 15. Now, they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And now enters lots of terrible Baptist doctrine uh, at this point. Here, children are being brought to Jesus to be blessed. Okay? That Jesus would pray over them, Jesus would kiss them, that Jesus would you know, hug them, hold them. The disciples don't like this, but Jesus says, let them come. Now, unfortunately, this passage, I think, is often incredibly misunderstood. This section is often used to justify the salvation of very young children. The danger is that we're confusing faith with understanding. Okay? Faith with understanding. Now, there's a level of understanding that has to come with faith, what are you having faith in? Right? So it's not just faith alone, but what's that faith in? What's that belief in? What is it? But we have to be careful at this point that we don't confuse those two components, if you will. Faith is trusting in something that you cannot see. Understanding requires a set of facts to be mentally comprehended. So I'm not saying, just off at, right off the start, right out of the gate here, I'm not saying that we have to have a seminary education to be a Christian. So clearly there's a very basic understanding of the gospel that is, that is sufficient for salvation. But Jesus' point here, this passage, is not teaching us the minimal facts needed or the minimal understanding needed of the gospel. What he's teaching us is faith. Is Well, I mean, I'm getting ahead of myself. So what we often do is we say, according to this passage, that young kids can come to faith in Christ because Jesus says to let them come. That's not, that's not, what, Jesus is, that's not what Jesus is getting to here. Jesus' point is not talking about the salvation of little kids. He's actually speaking to the adults here. He's telling them that if they are to be saved, that they must have faith that is like these kids, not an understanding that's like these kids but to have a faith that is like these kids. Jesus is talking, here's the key. 
Jesus here is talking about the nature of the faith, not the object of the faith. He's talking about the nature of the faith. How we would describe that faith, not what that faith is in. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God belongs to people who have faith like these children. To have faith that is the nature, that of a child's faith. So just think about, what, is it, what does a child's faith look like? It reminded me this past week, I, I like to throw my kids up in the air. Even as everyone else around me goes, ah, you know. Uh, oh my gosh, you're going to drop them. Uh, which I guess is, is a reasonable uh, chance that that could happen. But when I throw, it's funny because I've tossed a couple other kids that are not my kids up in the air. And they're like, oh. uh, Hayden, I guess maybe because I've done it so much. When I throw him up in the air, he's not only okay with it, but he laughs. Like, he's one of the funniest things in the world. He smiles. Like, does he have any clue? Like, that I could drop him and he would like cease to exist in that moment, at least on this earth. I mean, that'd be terrible, right? But think about the faith that he just trusts his dad. He has faith that his dad's not going to drop it. Does he understand all of that to, that there is to be understood? That there's physics involved and gravity that God created and, and that if he was to slip and the, that, that floor is very hard? Does he understand all those things? No. But he has faith. And his daddy, that his dad's going to keep a hold of him. That his dad's not going to cause him harm. That his dad, that he can trust his father. That's what Jesus is getting at. He's talking about this faith that doesn't have to know all the details. That doesn't, all, but a, he's talking about the, the nature of that faith. The nature of that faith is that it's, that it's total abandonment. That it's, that it's total trust. That's a life that where you don't, maybe you don't understand what God is doing, but you trust Him. You don't know all the facts, but you trust Him. That's the kind of faith, that's the nature of the faith. He's not saying a faith that puts one hand out but keeps the other hand, you know, in a place that's safe. You know, it's not Hayden saying, Dad, Dad, you can throw me up in the air, but that's only if you connect a safety bungee cord that connects me to the ceiling so that just in case you drop me, I'll be okay. Or, Dad, you can throw me up in the air, but as long as we're in the foam pit. Right? No, it's a faith that says, Dad, I don't care where we're at. I don't care what we're doing. I trust that you're going to take care of me. I trust that you will be glorified in my situation, in my life. It's the nature of faith. He's not talking about the content of salvation here. So that's the question. Who do you trust most? Who do you trust most? This is what Jesus is getting at. This is the crux of this, of this passage. Who do you trust most? Your government? Your doctor? Your spouse? Your friend? Yourself? Understand, this space is reserved for God. Understand that when you trust in something else more than God, you're committing spiritual adultery and idolatry. Example, trusting in your self-righteousness instead of maybe those who God has put around you to help lead you. Who do you trust most? That's a good question. You trust your paycheck, your money, your ability to work, your intellect, 
your control of your emotions, your biblical knowledge? Do you trust in those things the most? Or do you trust in God the most? You say, well, yeah, I trust in God. Okay, well, then how do you trust, how do you respond in those situations that God has put around you to lead you and such? Do you respond and trust then? Now, how do we understand the role of children in our lives? I think this is crucial. How do we understand, at least in part, the role of children in our lives? For some of us, it's to fill our quiver, right? Uh, as the Gaskins put on Facebook this morning. Uh, I said, don't you mean the Durango? Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, how do we understand children? They're not meant to be idols. They're not meant to be inconveniences. They're not meant, he's not giving them an example here as, as this is someone who is redeemed. But they are at least in part meant to be reminders of the kind of faith or the nature of the faith that we are to have in God. When you look at a child, when you see their faith, their faith in you, their faith in their parents, their faith in whatever it is, are you reminded at that moment of the kind of faith that you should have in God? And you say, well, I don't have any kids. Your church family has lots of kids, and you should serve in the nursery uh, to be reminded of the kind of faith you need. Now, you think I'm joking, but uh, I'm not joking, and yes, that's a plug to go serve in the nursery. Uh, we have like 26 kids below like fourth grade, something like that. Uh, we have lots of kids for you to be reminded of your desperate need to have faith in God like that of a child. So, it literally says that here, I would encourage you to serve in the nursery, if for any reason, to be reminded of the kind of faith needed as you follow Jesus. Okay. Lastly, where is your trust in God now versus your trust in God three months ago? Can you say it has grown? Can you say it has grown? If you can't say that it has grown, then your trust has grown in something else. It's either growing in God or it's growing in something else. Could be yourself, could be your paycheck. I mean, ultimately, it is in yourself. I mean, we're not going to fool. I mean, can't fool ourselves. It's, it's ultimately in ourselves. Do you give money to the church like you trust God? Do you live in relationship with other people like you trust God? Or do you remain closed? And do you confess sin like you trust God? These are all very different applications for this. Do you trust God more today than you did three weeks ago, three months ago? two years ago. I hope so. You trust God. So salvation is a gift from God, therefore always trust Him. Salvation is a gift from God, therefore realize that self-righteousness is a form of self-protection. Let me remind us that those given to legalism are concerned with developing standards and rules that they're able to keep. Okay, Let's keep that in mind as we read this passage. The rich ruler, verse 18 and a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, All of these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. 
But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And talk about frankness, like just straight to the point. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left his house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So, very quickly, the rich man looked at what he has and says that he was good to go. Essentially, I mean, see the self-righteousness here again with the rich man. I'm not going to give this up. He's saying, with my stuff, with what I have, I'm good to go. I don't need you, God. He was trusting in himself and his wealth. Just as the Pharisee saying, I got this. I'm good to go. I've done all of these things. The, the rich man is doing the same thing. He's just not pointing to religious things. He's pointing to worldly wealth. It's the same concept, though. Jesus' point here is not that salvation is difficult for the rich, but that it's impossible. I think that's a stern warning for us to consider in our culture of wealth today. Of course, those hearing Jesus would have been greatly surprised by this, right? Because those who are wealthy were seemed to have had favor by God. If he cannot be saved, then who can? I mean, this was their question. Who can be saved then? And Jesus says... It is possible with God. It is possible. Wealth, I believe Jesus was saying, is, is not good enough to get you to heaven, but it's surely good enough to get you to hell. And the warning here is for us is that we have not substituted something else in for what we need desperately, namely God. Jesus is trying to draw us a picture here of the difficulty of faith that he just talked about. So the faith, like the kids he just talked about, he's saying all of our lives we're going to be tempted to place our trust in other things for our future, security, hope, fulfillment, eternal life. We're going to be tempted day in and day out to place our trust in other things. So this faith, again, that he's talking about with these kids and having this, this kind of faith that is abandonment, that is a total trust, you're going to be tempted to place that in something else. So I would ask you the question, what is there in your life that rivals God at this point? Where are you tempted day in and day out to place your trust versus in, in something else versus God? What rivals that in your heart? Your job, education, safety, family, money. I would remind you again, the means in which God has chosen to speak to you through the Word, through your church, those kind of things. You can't say you trust God and not trust those things. What are you trying to hold on to? 
trust what Jesus says when he says this in 29. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Let's let go of our self-righteousness. When you trust in other things other than Jesus for your future, then you're being self-righteous. I've got this. I don't need that. But the same thing, the rich man and the Pharisee both said this. Instead, lean into Jesus. Do you understand that leaning into Christ, that leaning, placing your faith in Him is going to be one of the hardest, if not the hardest battle that all of us will face all of our lives? I think that's really what gets down to the crux of what Paul's talking about in Philippians when he talks about working out our salvation. He's saying you're going to struggle to keep your faith in Jesus. You're going to want to put it in everything else. But put it in that thing that you cannot see but you cannot deny. Put it in that. But you'll struggle with this. And then Philippians 2 encourages us, but understand that it is God who's doing this through you. Right? All right, so salvation is a gift of God. Therefore, salvation only comes by God's plan. Jesus' crucifixion and raising from the dead. Luke 18, 31-34. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he says. So Jesus here is talking about his future, talking about his future death. Jesus, very quickly here, Jesus is viewed, there's kind of like two main threads of, of like prophecy concerning Jesus in the Old Testament. One is the idea of the conquering king, the other is of the suffering servant. See, everyone at this point was expecting Jesus to come as the physical conquering king, establishing his physical kingdom. But instead, Jesus comes as a suffering servant. Because a suffering servant is the means by which God will accomplish this earthly kingdom that he will set up. So the crucifixion, the idea of the suffering servant is central to the Christian faith. There is no Christianity without the cross and resurrection. Without the cross, we have no suffering servant, therefore no propitiation, no justification, no sanctification, and ultimately no glorification. We have no payment for sin without the suffering servant to bear the wrath of God. If he just came and said, this is my kingdom and I'm in charge, where is the wrath being poured out on Jesus at that point? The wrath must be poured out on Jesus. Someone must be substituted in that payment for us. Notice God's sovereignty once again in revealing the truth in this passage. It says that these sayings were hidden from them. Who hid them from them? Is this out of God's control? No, God hid them. Why? I don't know. But we know it's for His purposes. Just speculation. Think if God would, would not hidden these things, maybe they would have taken off. Maybe they would have deserted Jesus at this point. Who knows? But we just know that God had purpose for this. Why does God choose to reveal himself to some and to others, leave them in their darkness headed to hell? We don't know. But it's for his purposes. 
So the rich ruler here was not willing to give up trust in his ability and money, but Jesus was willing to trust God in giving up his life for us. Cross is central. Salvation only comes through the cross of Christ. So lastly, salvation is a gift of God, therefore all praise goes to God. Verse 35. So all praise goes to God. And he drew near to Jericho. A blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of God, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. All right. Home stretch. So here we are, finally in Jericho, which is the last stop before Jerusalem. Jesus' last city, last stop before Jerusalem. Here a blind beggar receives his sight and follows Jesus, praising God. So notice he addresses him as Lord, and then the response after this healing, is praising God. I think this is informing us that the blind beggar recognized who Jesus was, not just from his sight, but even before that. He recognized him as the Son of God. It's interesting that everyone who saw it praised God. Now, we don't know if they were all believers, but they all recognized that he was marvelously given his sight back. Quick question of application. What about the people you work with? Would the people describe your life as God is clearly at work? Would they notice that only an explanation outside yourself would suffice in explaining what is going on in your life? What do you think? I mean, the crowd here recognized what Jesus is doing. They may not recognize who he is, but they know something marvelous is taking place. Right. I guess we should probably conclude. If salvation is solely a work of God, then it must be so that all the praise goes to him. Guys, in our sick and twisted world, we have made salvation into something that we can attain. It's the same thing in the garden. We've made salvation into a prayer to be read, an aisle to be walked, good works to be done, a decision that we alone in our self-righteousness can make. In all that, it's about our self-righteousness. But if God, but if it is God who must make it possible that we be saved, if it is God who must reveal the truth to us, if it is God who gives us the faith necessary to trust, if it is God who gives the gift of salvation, then it stands to reason that only God gets the praise. Only God gets the praise. So what we've seen in this chapter of following Jesus, what it looks like to follow Jesus is to keep on praying, persevere in prayer, 
to humble humbly uh, to humble ourselves to rely on God's mercy always trust him understand that salvation comes through the cross and that praise belongs to God for salvation let me point out something very important for us in closing you notice the word mercy back at the tax collector he cries out for mercy there it's only a handful of times and it's it's different in this passage this this very specific time the greek word there used again two greek lessons in one sermon the greek word there i don't typically do this but the greek word there means more than just the idea of mercy it actually means to be propitiated right propitiated so for god to do something about the wrath that is his like it very like it's a very strong word. Literally what he is saying is, God, do something about the wrath that is due to me. Please. That's what he is saying. God, do something. I can't do this. I cannot bear the weight of your wrath. You must use something else to absorb your wrath. Please do it. Have mercy on me. Propitiate me, Father. He recognized that his sin had brought about God's wrath and that he desperately needed God to appease that wrath. He knew he was helpless to appease the wrath of God. My question is, are you at this point in your life? Do you understand that you are helpless in appeasing the wrath of God due your sin? Because when we live in self-righteousness, we're saying that we don't. That we don't need God to do something about the wrath that is due. We think we've got it. Guys, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. When we give up our self-righteousness and take Christ's, that is salvation. Now lastly, notice who saw Jesus enter into the city. It was the blind man, right? The blind man saw Jesus entering into the city. The Pharisees didn't recognize him as Jesus. The other righteous people didn't recognize him as Jesus. Who recognized him? The blind man. Man, that's weird. What is going on at this point? The kingdom of God is coming. That's what's happening. Sight is being restored, but not necessarily physical sight, but spiritual sight. The recognition of the lacking that our self-righteousness has and the fulfillment and the sufficiency and the righteousness of Jesus. That's what's going on. Recognizing God for who He is, that's what's going on. The rightful King is coming to town, that's what's going on. Those who would bear the name Christian and follow Jesus and carry their cross. That is what's going on as Jesus enters this town. And my question is this, are you a citizen of this kingdom? Do you see the king coming with his kingdom? People who are saved see the king. And they recognize his kingdom. I'm going to pray for us as we begin to worship. Father. Thank you for your kind words this morning through the text. Father, I know that today, maybe not the most 
ear-tickling sermon that many of us have heard. But Father, I pray that we would not desire to hear passages and sermons that tickle our ears, but stuff that would change our lives, truth that would impact us for the kingdom. Um, Father, we would glorify you. <clears throat> Father, I, um, I admit that it is so hard to live a life that's dependent on you, so tempted to depend on myself, my self-righteousness. Father, I just pray that you would strip us of that, that you would show us that we are both the tax collector and the Pharisee. It just depends on what day of the week or which way the wind is blowing. Some days we don't understand the righteousness that we have in Christ. And so we call out going, God, I need something here. Propitiate me. And in other days, we stand there saying, my sack of crap is sufficient for my standing before God. Father, I just pray that we would recognize which side, which ditch, or which side of the road that we stand in most often. We would see that and repent of it and ask you to help us follow your son. And Father, we love you. Father, as your saints sing, I Father, I pray that you would lead their hearts to repentance. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Would you guys stand with me?